All right. Good morning. Today's scripture um, comes from Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. It can be found starting on page 814 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 9, 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Am I on? Thanks, John. This is water, by the way. <laughs> I'm Michael. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity, and I feel very, uh, very honored and humbled to preach at this church this morning. Um, I have a great deal of respect for Mike Stanzak and my elder brothers who've been faithfully preaching the gospel here every week since my family came here a few years ago. So thank you for entrusting this awesome responsibility to me. Would you pray with me as I ask for the Lord's grace? Father, I am weak and in desperate need of your grace. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would overcome and use my weakness to communicate your love and your mercy to us so that it's clear, so that it's convicting and comforting and life-changing. Father, I ask this for your glory. Amen. Many of you know the name Simon Sinek from his viral YouTube videos. He's talked about Apple and its success. He's also written a book entitled Start With Why. And after studying many organizations, he's developed a simple illustration called the Golden Circle. And in it, he explains that every organization is faced with three major questions, the what, the how, and the why. Now, most organizations, he says, know what it is they do. They know the products they make, and they know the services that they offer. Now, some organizations, 
may even know how they're able to differentiate themselves and identify the things that set them apart and make them special. But Siddick argues that most people spend so much time focusing on the what and the how that they fail to ask why. Now, the why question is critical because it reminds us of our purpose and our true identity. See, when we understand why we're doing something, it helps drive and sustain what it is we do and how we do it. Spiritually speaking, we should consider starting with why as well. Because whether, whether or not we realize it, it has a profound effect on how we live. So I'd like to point us back for a moment to our church's core value statement. And this is on the website. We affirm that the gospel is the central message of the Bible and the central transforming truth of all we are as a congregation. Our other values of worship, community, and mission are shaped by this core value. Now, essentially, we're saying that our, our true identity as a church and as individual followers of Christ is shaped by what Jesus has done for us in his life and death. We intentionally think about the implications that this truth has on what we do and how we do it. And so for us, this is what sets us apart and makes us unique from the rest of the world. Now, the world says you get your identity by what you achieve. But God says that our identity as his followers is based on what we have received from Christ. And so we're constantly calling ourselves back to this true identity. In our sermon series, The Kingdom Advances, Matthew helps us see three things related to our true identity with Christ. And he does this by using his own story of being called a disciple. And then he compares Jesus' ministry with the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. They're scandalized not only by the types of people Jesus calls, but also how they practice their religion. They don't know what it is, but what they do know is that Jesus' disciples are clearly different from them. So in our text this morning, I want to show you what makes our discipleship with Jesus unique from all other religions in the world, and that's our identity. Our true identity, then, is given to us, it's acknowledged by us, and it's also rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Our true identity is given to us. Matthew describes his personal encounter with Jesus, saying that Jesus saw him sitting in his tax booth, and said, follow me. In that short statement, something astounding has happened to Matthew, but I think he's careful not to draw undue attention to himself. Notice that Jesus is the one seeking out Matthew in his place of work and not the other way around. And this is different than the way we hear many people describe their story of salvation. See, we use phrases like, I found Jesus, or something that communicates that we were the ones who took the initiative to find him. And I'm guessing that in this room, if I asked, are you a Christian? I think most of us would immediately say yes. But if I dug deeper and I asked, okay, but why? Why are you a Christian? 
I think our answers might take a bit more thought and explanation. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever considered this question before, but I'm guessing that you might point to things like a crisis in your life that occurred or an inspirational message that you heard. You might even point to a prayer that you prayed as the cause of your salvation. And while all those things may contribute to our being led to the Lord, they really can't sufficiently point to the source of why we are Christians. Let me unpack this a bit. Matthew tells us that he was a tax collector at a toll booth. Now, this is another short statement, but one that's packed with a lot of information. To give context to that statement, you need to know that the oppressive Roman government would use people like Matthew to collect taxes to fund their government. Now, like any other form of bureaucracy, there were various levels of tax collectors. And Matthew was identified as the very lowest level of tax collectors assigned to do all the dirty work for the bureaucrats. Now, people like Matthew operated like a little mafia. And what they would do is they would set up their little toll booths in strategic places around their town. And they would shake down people for their money as they passed in and out of the city. Now, these people were hated because they abused their position of power. They agreed to collect a certain amount of taxes for the Romans, and they were allowed to keep a fraction for themselves as commission. But what they would do is they would often exaggerate the amount of taxes due, and then they would pocket the excess for themselves. And many of them became wealthy over it. Now, to add insult to injury, these men were usually Jewish, and so they were considered traitors for oppressing their own people. So what Matthew is telling us is that he was an immoral man. He was a religious outcast, identified with prostitutes and thieves and murderers and the rest of the sinners in town. Now, you remember the passage last week that Mike preached from Jesus demonstrated his authority to forgive sins. And so the very next thing that Matthew shows us is the scope of that forgiveness. What kind of people does Jesus forgive? Well, he forgives even the worst of sinners. So let's go back to the why question. Why did Matthew respond to Jesus' words? Matthew wants us to see that before Jesus calls him, He has no personal inclination to find Jesus and start following on his own. But instead, he tells us that it was while he was sitting in his tax booth that Jesus called him. In other other words, it was Jesus, not Matthew, who initiated this radical change in his life. And he's showing that God was sovereignly intervening in his life to give him a new heart and the ability to see the glory of Christ. What Matthew is describing to us is God's effectual call of redemption. Now, Jesus says in John 6 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the interesting thing about that word draw is that it conveys the idea of someone being dragged somewhere by overcoming their will. But we don't want to think of this as God dragging people into the kingdom who protest that they don't want to be saved. Instead, I think we should think of this as God's divine mercy. So let me explain. My kids, and they didn't know I was going to say this, but my kids, were, when they were small and unable to rationally think on their own, 
they would put themselves in grave danger like running in the street. But because they were ignorant of the danger that they were in and unable to help themselves, I would have to overpower their desire to run in the street by literally grabbing them and dragging them away from the danger and into the safety of my arms. And the moment they realized what I was dragging them away from, they willingly stopped resisting and surrendered their will to mine. See, there's a certainty and an effectiveness in what Jesus is doing here. He's graciously giving spiritual life and a new heart to Matthew so that where there was once rebellion towards God, now there's a willing response to Jesus. And when Jesus calls his name, Matthew tells us that he rose and he followed him. Now, Matthew was not the cause of his conversion, but the actual cause was the call of Jesus. Now, this is different than a general call of repentance and discipleship. And we see examples of this in John 7, when Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We see it in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But in spite of these general calls, the people reject Jesus, and they go on living their lives apart from him. But this is different. This effectual calling of Matthew and of many of us is a personal call to Jesus Christ. It's not a call to say that something is merely available to us, but it's a sovereign, personal call that Jesus describes in John 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But notice that Matthew isn't called to a religious system or a set of rules. He's called to the person of Christ. And that's why Jesus says, follow me. The reason why we need to see this is because we may feel called to many things that we equate to Christianity, but are not the person of Christ. We saw in Matthew 7 earlier this year, the sobering words of Jesus that many will stand before Jesus. And on that day, they'll say, Lord, Lord. And then they're going to list out all the things that they did in his name as justification for being in the kingdom. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. But this is why I believe Matthew records these events for us, because we see that the evidence of his effectual call to us is repentance and a transformed life. Now we see a beautiful picture of what this looks like as Matthew heeds this call. Let me make this clear. This is not just a call to a change in behavior, but it's a call to repentance and a change in life. As many of you have already learned, repentance means to change your mind, right? But I think the English translation doesn't quite capture the full meaning of that word in the Greek or the Hebrew, because it involves not just your mind, but your whole life. And it's fundamentally changing our attitudes and desires so that our lives are oriented away from sin and then turn toward God. Now, the kind of repentance we see in the scriptures is deeply connected to our relationship with God and the offense that we've committed against him. And one of the best examples that I know of is in Psalm 51 where King David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But then he adds this. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. See, he doesn't just want a change in behavior, but he wants a change in his heart so that his life is turned back towards God. So perhaps a better way to think about repentance is changing the orientation of our lives back toward Jesus. And if we think about Matthew getting up to follow Jesus, we can picture him literally turning his back on the tax booth and reorienting himself toward Jesus. And this is what we're doing when we repent. We're not just stopping the sin, but we're also turning toward our Savior and reorienting our lives to align it with him. But do you realize that even our repentance is a gracious gift of God to us? Because if we're left on our own, we would never initiate this act of turning to follow him. So we need to think about what it really means to be saved by grace. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes a before and after picture of our salvation. And he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God was merciful in making us alive in Christ. And then he presses the point even further by saying it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. See, what Paul is saying is that spiritually dead people can't make themselves alive in Christ. The point is that when we think about our salvation, we need to remember that we were not the cause of our salvation, but we needed God's merciful intervention in our lives to save us. Martin Luther said, if grace depends upon our cooperation, then it's no longer grace. And by this gracious act of God, the scriptures tell us that he gives us a new identity. We were enemies, but now we're friends. We were slaves, but now we're sons. We were dead in our sins, but now we're alive in Christ. This should amaze us and humble us that God's grace comes from outside of us to awaken our spirits, to give us the ability to see the beauty of Christ. You see, the reason why you and I are Christians is not because we raised ourselves from the spiritual dead, but it's because he alone is a God full of grace and mercy. And he calls our name like Matthew and says, follow me. Our true identity is given to us when he effectually calls us. If you've ever heard someone talk about a near-death experience and how they're lucky to be alive, you can sense how that realization has impacted their lives forever. They keep talking about it, and they keep thinking about how that thing, that experience, that realization has changed everything else in their lives and put it in proper perspective. This is the effect that God's grace should have on us. We should keep looking back and marveling at this identity that's been given to us, and we acknowledge it constantly. Christian counselor David Powelson tells us that our true identity is a gift of God, a surprising discovery, and then a committed choice. In other words, once we discover that this identity has been graciously given to us, we acknowledge it and we keep reminding ourselves of it. But what specifically are we acknowledging? 
Well, we're acknowledging that we're sinners who are spiritually bankrupt and poor in spirit. Now, you may recall that being poor in spirit is the first of the Beatitudes we're studying in, in the Sermon on the Mount this year. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I like how A.W. Pink defines this. He says, poverty of spirit is evident in a person when he is brought into the dust before God to acknowledge his utter helplessness. I like that. Because when we're helpless, we cannot help ourselves. But the Pharisees were the complete opposite of what this meant. And you can hear the contempt when they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's pretty obvious. They weren't asking for information. But what they were doing was criticizing and trying to impugn his credibility as a teacher. So the question we must again ask is why? Why did they question Jesus' kindness to sinners, and why were they so arrogant about it? Well, Jesus rebuked them, saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, he was pointing to their heart problem. They couldn't see or admit their own sickness, but they were fixated on the spiritual sickness of other people. In previous sermons this year, we learned that within first century Judaism, the Pharisees stood morally tall above the rest, and they were widely accepted as the standard of righteousness among the people because their outward devotion to the law of God was unmatched. And that's why it was so shocking to hear Jesus say that our righteousness then must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we're to enter the kingdom. The reason why the Pharisees had such contempt for Jesus and sinners was really because of how they viewed the law in relation to themselves. Here's where they missed the heart of God's holy law. When they read the law, they used it as a moral checklist. And when they graded themselves, they always gave themselves an A+. See, the Pharisees made the mistake of attributing power to the law that didn't even exist. The law is good and can point us toward godliness, but it doesn't have the power to make us godly. The primary function of God's law is to act as a mirror to our souls, where the law reveals both the perfect righteousness of God and at the same time it reveals our sinfulness and inability to keep the law. Tim Keller points out that if you listen at all to the law of God, you will feel naked and exposed, ashamed and helpless, and you will seek out the mercy of God. In essence, the law of God serves to first expose us and humble us so that we will run to the mercy of God. Now, this is how the law should be used. But the Pharisees and those who aspire to be like them They use the law as a means for making themselves righteous. Their reading of the law didn't humble them, but it filled them with arrogance and contempt for other people. And before we put too much distance between ourselves and the Pharisees, we have to admit that we have this problem too. So you and I are often guilty of using the wrong standard like the Pharisees. 
We use people as our standard instead of the perfect standard of Jesus. How do we do this? Well, we have our own unwritten forms of the law to judge others, or we compare ourselves to others in order to feel righteous. And we may not voice it, but it manifests itself when we withhold our love or we withhold our acceptance of other people unless they meet our expectations or demands. When Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he wasn't saying the Pharisees were righteous. He was actually condemning them for not being poor in spirit. And he goes on and he uses a reference from Hosea 6, and he tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So why would Jesus use this particular reference? In Hosea, the people were offering up heartless worship to God. They were using spiritual activity, their sacrifices, as a cover for their sin. They would worship on Sunday, but live the rest of the week like people who didn't even know God. And so God compares their love for him like the morning dew, and he says it's there for a brief moment, and then it disappears. See, they were blind to their sin problem. And if they were aware of it, they were indifferent about it. And maybe that's our problem too. If you've never read John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, I strongly recommend it to you. Now, he's a dead English theologian. He lived in the 1600s, but he's brilliant. And one of the striking things you'll find as you read him is how seriously he takes sin, especially in comparison to how we view our sin today. Listen to what he says about our fight against sin. He says the best believers who are certainly freed from the condemning power of sin still need to make it their business to mortify the indwelling power of sin all their life. Do you mortify the sin in your life? Do you make it your daily work? Always be at work while you live. Do not miss a day from it. You need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. See, God wants us to be intentional to connect our worship of him with who we really are. And he's pointing out a real danger that it's possible for us to use our spiritual activity as a substitute for spiritual character. Maybe there are things in your life that the Holy Spirit keeps pressing on and telling you to repent of, but instead of addressing those things, you just get more spiritually active in areas that aren't a problem. But the more we do this, the more we become blind to our sin, and we start to use worship and works as a form of karma, where we deceive ourselves in thinking that our spiritual activity in one area will somehow negate the present sin in our lives somewhere else. See, we're trying to offset the bad with the good deeds that we do. The songs that we sing, our sermons, our communion together should all serve to remind us that we were dead in our trespasses. We were without hope, but God, being rich in mercy, came to save us from his just and holy wrath. We need to continually acknowledge our identity as those who are poor in spirit. 
Now, lastly, our true identity is rooted in grace. Verses 14 through 17. John's disciples seem really concerned that Jesus' disciples don't live like they do. And so they ask a second question, and they ask it directly to Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? See, they recognize that Jesus is doing something new with his disciples, but they still align themselves with the doctrine and the practice of the Pharisees. Now, why would they do this? To give you some context, there was really only one fast that God required during the year. We find in Leviticus that it was on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees added to God's requirement. And to be extra pious, they fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. God didn't require this. But the Pharisees did. And John's disciples followed this practice. Now, some commentators note that a possible reason for them doing this is because their teacher, John the Baptist, was in prison at the time. He was about to be beheaded. And you may recall that he also preached about being ready for the kingdom. But without John to guide them, they were looking for ways to get ready. And they wanted to align themselves with the most devout form of religion that they knew. And so they followed this example of the Pharisees. It's also important to understand that the fasting in the Old Testament was most often associated with mourning and a longing for the Messiah to be with them. So Jesus first uses the illustration of a bridegroom. The idea of God as a bridegroom or a husband of Israel is found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so this image would be very familiar to John's disciples. They would have understood that not only was Jesus saying that he is the Messiah they longed for, but as Mike and JP have been helping us see over the past few weeks, that Messiah is with them now. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus would say that the purpose of their fasting didn't fit this occasion because this was a time of joy and celebration, not mourning. But then he adds that the days will come when he's taken away from them, and then his disciples will fast. So this seems to be a veiled reference to his arrest and crucifixion. So here's what I think he's saying to them in this first illustration, and this is to John's disciples. You fast in order to impress the bridegroom because you don't know him, even though he's right in front of you. But my disciples will fast, not to impress me, but out of genuine love as my bride and because they long for my return. So let's quickly look at the next two illustrations. He says you can't use a new unshrunk cloth to patch up the hole in an old cloth because after you wash it, the fibers of the old cloth will stretch the new cloth and it's going to tear both. Then he says you can't put new wine into an old wineskin for a similar reason. See, what would happen is the fermentation of the new wine would produce carbon dioxide, and that would expand and stretch the wineskin. And so these old wineskins would become dry and worn out and brittle and inflexible. And if you tried to put new wine into an old wineskin, the skin would burst, and you would ruin it. So what's the connection between these three illustrations, the bridegroom, the cloth, and 
the wineskin. It seems to me that the common thread in Jesus' response is that there's a total disconnect between how John's disciples relate to God and the gospel of grace that Jesus is now ushering in. See, they believe that we relate to God based on our achievements, but Jesus demonstrates that our true identity is rooted in grace, in his grace toward us. And we need to understand how revolutionary and extremely offensive this was to John's disciples. You see, most first century Jews assumed that their religious rituals and customs would remain unchanged when Messiah came. And perhaps John's disciples were thinking that maybe Jesus was just refining their system or just adding a little bit to it. But Jesus refutes this assumption and he says, in effect, that their way and his way completely incompatible. Said differently, we can think of the religious identity of the Pharisees and John's disciples as a spiritual ladder to God, where we climb closer to God with our spiritual activity and achievements. But here's the problem. There isn't a ladder big enough to reach God through our achievements, and so Jesus doesn't come to make the ladder bigger or fix it or improve it but he comes to replace it completely with a cross where he himself is the only bridge to God. Now remember that the Pharisees and John's disciples were steeped in religion every day, and their public religious performances became their identity. We compare this now to Jesus' disciples like Matthew. They're newly converted to the faith. Some of them, not too long ago, were considered the worst of sinners. And the only thing they know at this point is that Jesus loves them, that he accepts them, and he's forgiven them of all their sins. But now you have the Pharisees and John's disciples criticizing and questioning them for not following the smallest details of the law that they created. Their identity was rooted in performance. But the identity of Jesus' disciples is always rooted in grace. See, in a system of religious performance, we're privately, or not so privately, in constant fear of what others think about us, and even what we think about ourselves. Perhaps that's why John's disciples make this comparison between them and Jesus' disciples. But we have to admit that sometimes performance feels more comfortable than grace because it gives us a false sense of control. We believe we can control what people think of us by our performance. And we even deceive ourselves into thinking we can control what God thinks of us by our behavior. But we need to remember that our true identity is rooted in the gospel of grace because there's always this constant temptation for us to pour the new wine that he's given to us into the old wineskin. It really is hard to believe, isn't it, that God would love us and accept us before we do anything to earn it. And it is hard to believe That God is that gracious. But Jesus came to liberate us from the spiritual slavery of performance, and he invites us to believe it. 
and to live in light of that truth. So what do we do with this passage? Well, the way in which I think we can best apply this to our lives is to simply examine our own hearts and to ask some questions. Now, maybe this passage is showing you today that you've been trying to save yourself by working to impress God or to impress other people. Maybe Jesus is calling you today. And if he is, will you follow him? If you're a disciple of Christ already, are you using spiritual activity as a substitute for spiritual character? And referring back to our core value statement, which core value is shaping what you do and how you do it? Is it performance or is it gospel, the gospel of grace? As you spend time with your family and your community groups this week, I encourage you to talk and pray about these things together. But I also encourage you in your times alone with God this week to just think about your Christianity. Why are you a Christian? And to marvel at how God saved you and called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, I think one of the most powerful things about the gospel is the freedom that we experience when we learn our true identity in Christ. Because there's a world of difference when we relate to God based on what he has done for us instead of on our own merit. And as I close, listen to how one author describes what happens when we begin to understand our true identity in Christ. He says this, Grace turns our world upside down. It disrespects our values. It pops the bubble of our self-righteousness. It throws our to-do list out the window. But perhaps the scariest and most offensive part of all is the question that it asks. What are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? My suspicion is that once you realize that you don't have to do anything for God, you may find that you want to do everything for him. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed and humbled by how much you love us and the lengths that you have gone through in order to save us from your wrath. God, thank you for your abundant grace and mercy that freed us from the power of sin so that we can freely love you with no strings attached. God, I ask that you would speak to us Continue to speak to us and cause your word to resonate in our hearts so that we may know and acknowledge and live in light of this true identity that you've given to us. God, we love you, and we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.